Hello, beautiful listeners. It's Rob with Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. We know you love the stories we tell, and we love telling them. However, producing and hosting the podcast is not free, but there's a way you can help. Find us on Patreon. Our Patreon members get access to exclusive content, early episode releases, and all other sorts of goodies. Go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a buck a month. Every cent we take in goes back to making the show bigger and better. Thank you, we love you, and as always, hold fast and enjoy the show. So the operative question here, gentlemen, and I I have to ask this, um, given the subject matter today, what animal would you eat and why? Like that we don't normally eat. I don't know where my line stops. Mm. I'm gonna be honest, because like you know, I remember they had that like PETA commercial or the the billboards. <laughs> yeah. It was like, where would you draw the line? And I'm like, I don't know, man. Like I've eaten a lot of shit. I've eaten a lot of weird stuff. Yeah. Oh man, I'm probably the wrong person to ask this question to, or <laughs> the exact right person. Yeah, like, I don't know where I would have drawn that line. Because it starts with, what, I think cow? Mm-hmm. It's like cow, chicken, pig, sheep, horse. horse. Then you get into, like, dog, cat. Yeah, it's like guinea pigs and stuff. It's like, I don't know, maybe they're delicious. Yeah. I don't know. They're made of food. Mm-hmm. I, probably I know, something, man. yeah, probably something capable of eating me. Like another alpha predator, like polar bear or oh, something. Oh, just to even the scales? Yeah. Just to let them know what the score is. I mean, mm-hmm. I've had like... Make a statement. I've had rattlesnake. I've had gator. I've had gator. Mm-hmm. Gator's good. Gator. Shark. I love shark. Right. But yeah, like, uh, oh man. I, don't I, know. I had kudu in Botswana. How was that? Delicious. Yeah, I believe it. Maybe it was just the preparation. I don't know, but it was fabulous. Ah, but they like, they're fairly mobile critters. Mm-hmm. They have a fairly like standard diet. Apparently that's why sharks don't eat people. Yeah. Because we taste bad. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. we eat a bunch of weird shit and we taste like weird shit. Well, like, and we put chemicals on our skin that just never washes away properly. The and, microplastics. Yeah. You know, soaps, oils. The question is, long pig? <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyone? 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 I don't know. I've seen the movie Alive. and Yeah. The last guy seemed kind of happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody enjoyed that, except for like a couple of them. Uh, well, it was well-preserved. I do enjoy Cronenberg's early works, where everybody's just eating everybody. I mean, well, and, and speaking of long pig, we got three of the longest pigs around. It's Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I'm your host, Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. And I am Kyle Graper. And today we are talking about interesting culinary choices, because we're talking about a guy who made... A lot of interesting culinary choices, and a lot of interesting choices uh, otherwise as well. Today we're discussing a fellow by the name of William Dampier. And uh, this fella, he's, he's, a, he's a character. It's somebody that, that, you know, you probably don't know an awful lot about, but it turns out you know an awful lot of the shit he did. Mm-hmm. Like, whether, yeah, it turns out he is responsible for so much shit right now. Yeah, which and is crazy. And, uh, we also picked him because a lot of the things he's involved in coincide with so many of the other stories we have already told and will end up telling in the future. Right. So when you go into Na- London's National Portrait Gallery and find the likeness of William Dampier, it reads below it, pirate and hydrographer. 
Which in itself is an interesting combination that one doesn't really expect to see, but that only tells one part of the story. Our subject today is the real-life version of the most interesting man in the world, set against the background of the Battle of Empires in the late 16th and early 17th, or late 16th and early 1700s. He was an adventurer, a buccaneer, a pirate, a navigation pioneer, a naturalist, an explorer, a travel writer, a gourmand, a darling of the Royal Society, and an all-around celebrity in his own age, whose work set in motion multiple different paradigms in literature and exploration, and influenced the great and the good for centuries to come, from Horatio Nelson to Charles Darwin. He was the first Englishman to explore their eventual penal colony, a little place called Australia. He was the first man to circumnavigate the world. Penal colony. It's... Got thank, thank you, Chris. Um, he was the first man to circumnavigate the world three times. He went through his life as some sort of mix of Captain Cook and Sir Francis Drake, and that's why we love this guy. And it's also because he knew both those dudes. <laughs> he worked with them. Well, no, he was kind of sandwiched in between the that's two of them. That's true. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess, wait, when was... Well, Francis Drake died in like 16... 16- yeah, I would say Drake was, Drake was, well, he was 16th century. Yeah, in the late 16th century, and Captain Cook wasn't even born by the time William Dampier died. But he does. Was Coke born? He, he is a very kind of fascinating bridge in between the two, and we often have a very set reason for picking the topics we pick based on timing or relevant interest. But for this episode, we chose Dampier because he's just such a fascinating and amusing man to study. And after hearing this episode, we hope you'll agree. So before we get into the story, we of course want to do honor to our sources. Our main source today is a book called *A Pirate of Exquisite Mind* by Diana and Michael Preston. This book is fantastic. It is widely regarded as like the like the source. Mm-hmm. And if you read it or even read parts of it, no wonder. It's really good. Like it's these very, two very did a good. great job. Yeah, the book is fantastic. It's detailed, it's well written, it's entertaining, and it's as good a work as I've ever read on anyone in the uh, golden age of buccaneering. We also have a book called The Devil's Mariner, A Life of William Dampier, Pirate and Explorer by Anton Gill. And we're pulling from the many works of William Dampier himself, which we're not going to name now. We'll go into those over the course of the episode. Gentlemen, anything to add before we get into the the talented Mr. Dampier? I think the one thing we kind of used as a footnote here is he was the first man in history to circumnavigate the globe three times. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, it's just kind of another thing he did. And he kind of did it, he kind of mistaked his way into some of it. There is a, there is a Forrest Gump quality to this man. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk about it. So William Dampier was born as the second child of a tenant farmer in a little place called East Coker in South Somerset, down in England southwest, the son of George and Anne Dampier. He had one older brother, also named George, a younger sister named Thomasina, and a little brother named Josias. Now, we don't know his exact date of birth, but it was probably within a month before the date of his christening on the 5th of September, 1651. Yeah, we don't. We have no no record exists of when he was born, but there's like highly detailed records of when he was baptized. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> if he was born, it was probably a home birth, and you know the Anglican Church, which if I think he was, he was born, Anglican, he was definitely was, born. We know that. Yeah, they were. They were. <laughs> well, yeah, that we can confirm. <laughs> we can confirm that he was in fact born. But uh, the the Anglican Church at the time kept very detailed parish records. So East Coker was, and still is, a modest little place. Only about 1,500 people or so live there now, dominated by a stately home called Himmerford House, named after the family who built the place and lived there for centuries. Though little William was from a family of very modest means, he was fortunate in that the Himmerfords were one of those rich landowning families that had a sense of civic duty, at least to the people who worked their lands, and they provided for the schooling of the children of all their tenants, which was unusual for the time, but good happenstance for William, as he was one of those kids who loved school, and loved learning. 
showing great enthusiasm for just about every subject you could throw in front of him. His childhood certainly didn't lack for adversity, though, as his father fell ill and died when William was only seven, and seven years later, in 1665, his mother and possibly one or more of his younger siblings, we're not entirely sure, died when the last burst of the Great Plague swept through England. <laughs> now, left in... Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, the Great Plague mostly cleared out London. It still did work its way through the countryside, and it wasn't pretty. So left in the care of provided guardians, the now-orphaned William persuaded the Hemmerfords to sign off on giving him an apprenticeship on one of their, uh, in one of their shipping interests in the nearby port of Weymouth. And at the age of 14, William Dampier first took to sea aboard a small merchant vessel, mostly doing shuttle runs to various ports in France. But he did set off on a journey to Newfoundland, which gave him his first real taste of the open ocean and a real distaste for cold climates. He, he did not... Cold builds character. I don't give a shit what anybody says. I mean, I I, I agree. I think it... You I know. think you're both absolute psychopaths. There it is. There's the answer right there. Spoken like the thin man you are. Mm -hmm. Listen. You are weak. Yes, but... Your bloodline is weak. And that's why you will not survive the winter. I mean, I'm riddled with Crohn's. All right. So after... Kyle has Crohn's disease? Yeah, Kyle's shocking. mentioning Crohn's? Shocking. So after returning from that voyage, he spent some time in London. We're not quite sure doing exactly what, but before long, the sea began to call to him again in 1670 in his late teens, and setting out from a capital that was still sporting charred ruins from the Great Fire, he took a spot on the East Indiaman John and Martha on a voyage that more suited his tastes. It's a weird name for a ship. Well, it's two names for one ship. But uh, he took a uh, long trading voyage to Java in what's now Indonesia. Now, this voyage was Dampier's university at sea. He truly applied himself into learning the difficult art of maritime navigation, took in a lot of information on what to do and what not to do when it came to sustaining long voyages, and London to Java is nearly 14,000 miles. So there was a lot to, uh, to process about supply, sustain, uh, sustainment, and route planning. As his later works would note, this is also where he began to take a keen interest in the workings of the winds and currents and patterns of weather. Overall, the journey took nearly two years, and when Dampier finally returned home to England in 1672, uh, he found the nation to be in a state of war with the Dutch, and either patriotism or a lust for prize money compelled him to enlist in the Royal Navy, placing him on board the 100-gun ship of the line HMS Royal Prince, the largest ship in the Royal Navy at that time. He took part in two major engagements, giving his first taste of nautical violence, including the Battle of Sol Bay, in which two Allied fleets comprising nearly 200 ships in total slugged it out for, to no real effect other than getting a bunch of people killed. HMS Royal Prince was so badly mauled in the fighting, taking the worst of it until blood ran from her scuppers, but William Dampier managed to avoid serious harm. However, he soon ended up being rotated out to a hospital ashore at Harwich due to a long, serious illness, but as Dampier's health returned... So did his desire for the sea and lands abroad. Now, reaching out to seek employment outside of Britain, Dampier got a positive response from Colonel William Helliar, current squire of Himmerford House, who needed someone to help run the sugar plantation he had newly acquired in Jamaica. Dampier took ship to Port Royal aboard the Content, agreeing to work as an able seaman to pay for his passage. Spending the whole time fending off attempts to get him to unknowingly sign himself over to indentured servitude in the colony, which was apparently a massively popular scam at the time, he took up his position at Hellier's plantation by Brook, running accounts and learning about the value of sugar growth and processing, as well as helping the plantation's doctor treat the illnesses that were so common in Jamaica, uh, including one cure for dysentery that Dampier mentions in a diary, quote, Take a freshly hardened egg and peel off the shell, and put the smaller end of it into the arsehole. 
That is hyphenated, by the way. Kyle, you wanna you wanna borrow my pen for a minute? Do you need it? Can I borrow an egg? <laughs> as a matter of at fact, these prices, <laughs> as a matter of fact, I have six hard boiled eggs, <laughs> which means that you, that's that's a couple tries there, big guy. So our next Patreon tier, <laughs> <laughs> and when the and when the egg is cold, take another fresh, hot, hard, and peeled egg and apply it as aforesaid. <laughs> the the man had an, a scientific mind. Nature's butt plug, baby. So. <laughs> That's not a sentence I thought I was going to say today. Anyway, but... Yes, it was. Well, yeah, fair. Dampier was one of those guys who wasn't shy about his intelligence and making statements about how he thought he could do a better job than everyone else, which in many cases may have been true, but that's not going to make you a lot of friends. And this led to a bit of a breakdown in relations between Dampier and everyone in a position of authority on the plantation, and from what it sounds like, just about every other plantation in the vicinity of Spanish town. Now, eventually, the plantation manager, a man named Whaley found out that Dampier had gone on a week-long bender with the plantation doctor and his wife, who Whaley describes as, quote, the nastiest wasting slut that ever came into a house fit to do nothing at all. I, uh, <laughs> Way to pull your punches there, Whaley. And during the course of this bender, the three of them had apparently drained over 15 gallons of rum punch and eaten 50 pounds of pork. <laughs> Damn. That's what I call a slow Tuesday. Yeah. <laughs> now, this led to a fist fight between Whaley and Dampier, surprisingly with both parties claiming that it ended in a draw, and Dampier was dismissed from his position. I got it. So, Chris, as our, as our um, cocktail professional. That's a lot of rum punch, man. 17th century rum punch. That, this is at that's the, a drink with a kick in This it. is at the time whenever rum was just kind of made however. Mm-hmm. It was just made very quickly... With whatever you had on hand, usually molasses, but you had to start some sort of process of fermentation, and sometimes that was just like dead bodies. And it's the reason they call it a demon rum is because sometimes you would drink it, and you would either be driven mad or just die. Like, there weren't a lot of standards here. That's why like grog existed because you couldn't drink the kind of rums that they had on yeah. these boats. So they would add a bunch of back sweetening to it, either some sort of sugar, more molasses, whatever. And citrus, which uh, they didn't know at the time, uh, would prevent scurvy, mm-hmm. which is great. Uh, but it just made it taste less bad because you know what tastes really good? Citrus, mm-hmm. lime juice, grapefruit juice, orange juice. Like all these things taste good. So they would mix them all together and you would drink that. Eventually, that was refined into rum punch, which kind of was grog with a recipe, hmm. I guess, just at scale. Tend, tended to be spiced, right? I'm correct. More about that. like in, like baking spices, anything mm-hmm. that was indigenous to there. Think of like uh, anything you get in nutmeg, mace. Yeah, I was gonna say. Stuff. Think of like um, oh, like jerk seasoning. Mm-hmm. Uh, it it has mm. a bunch of pepper, but then it has what thyme, cinnamon, allspice, anise, clove. Yeah, all all of these things. So yeah, it was a spiced cocktail. It's very good. You can still get it. You can still make it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of great books on punches. I can I can recommend them, but uh, no, punch is delicious. It's also designed to be kind of you know, left out and consumed as you will. Now they probably had a shitload of it, and they were like, "Hey, cool punch!" And then they were hammered, <laughs> like, "Hey, cool punch!" <laughs> like you know me, ice some punch, and it was just there. So they had 15 gallons in a couple. Uh, you know, would help wash down that 50 pounds of pork. Punch, punch, punch. some delicious punch. It's well, what's, to be what's interesting too is uh, that. Dampier had a kind of a lifelong obsession with rum punch. It was his favorite drink by far. And like when he would, he, there are there are copies of his requests. Like when he would 
take a position with an expedition or something. Mm-hmm. To basically give them, for lack of a better term, a rider. Yeah. And one of the things he always asked for to be provided for him was a spice grinder. So that he could go on board ship and make rum punch. <laughs> so that he could grind his nutmeg and his allspice and whatever and throw it in there, apparently. So... Dampier languished in Jamaica, having been fired from the plantation, living off his savings and taking odd jobs, until he eventually found a gig working aboard a small vessel bound for the Bay of Campeche, along the Yucatan in Mexico, in order to trade with the logwood cutters. Now, logwood was used for luxury furniture back in Europe and as a dark dye, but it Because there's a red sap, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it looks like it bleeds whenever you cut it, which is awesome. But it has a very, like, very rich, dark red dye quality to it. It makes really nice, like, maroon kind of scarlet kind of colors. Like anything you might want to dye yeah. red is what you're saying. Pretty much. <laughs> but, like, but like deep red, not like bright red. But logwood grew in a harsh environment and was har- harvested by even harsher men. Particularly rough even by the standards of the 17th century Caribbean. Now, many of them were former crewmen of the famed Captain Morgan, or fugitives, and they cut logwood in the mangrove swamps when they weren't engaging in their favorite hobbies, which were long drinking binges, shooting cattle, and or raiding the closest Spanish settlements. Now, they traded with the woodcutters, giving them rum and sugar in exchange for logwood, and passed out plenty of food and rum punch, which was necessary, because the logwood cutters had a method of repaying poor hospitality by trading hollowed-out timbers filled with dirt and plugged at the end with wood hammered back in so that the traders got screwed when they tried to sell it. Oh, that's really funny. That's very funny. Just so we're clear, that is incredibly funny, because it takes a long time to be that petty. Like this, there's that's, a, there that's is a labor, process involved is labor here. intensive. And it pettiness. has to look right, because mm-hmm. yeah. otherwise you're going to see the ends of this and be like, is this thing full of dirt? And they're like, no, absolutely not. <laughs> Dampier was fascinated with these men, their trade, their propensity for violence against the Spanish if the opportunity presented itself, and for how they lived, both sleeping and doing their cooking on the same type of wooden frame that Dampier would later write about in his 1705 book, The Campeche Voyages, calling these frames barbecues. First known use in the English language of that word. Now, Dampier spent more ta- spent some more time aboard this little logwood trader, sailing around the Caribbean and taking in not only the nature of Caribbean sailing, but also the various flora and fauna that he encountered on the various islands and inlets. But at the same time, he also managed to piss off the captain of this logwood trading vessel with his usual ambition and I can do your job better than you shtick. So after returning to Jamaica and selling their rich cargo of logwood, Dampier took his share, an admittedly healthy sum, and parted ways with that trading outfit, and he decided to invest his gains in his own logwood cutting operation. Purchasing axes, machetes, saws, hatchets, a tent, guns, powder, and shot, he booked passage back to the Bay of Campeche and started keeping a diary of not only his experiences, but also the terrain, the tides, the anchorages, the sort of information that comes in handy later when you're writing a book on navigation. In February of 1676, he rolled up in logwood cutting territory with a, with a, hey, fellas, and set about making camp and learning the trade. Now, he learned quickly and was apparently a good enough worker that even the naturally distrustful loggers took to him fairly well, or at least tolerated his presence. But instead of binge drinking and extra legal raids on the Spanish, Dampier spent most of his time exploring the local terrain and taking notes on the various exotic species of plants and animals, particularly fascinated with the aggressive local spider monkeys his notes about which helped become the basis for the portrayal of the yahoos in a little work by Jonathan Swift called Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> As an example of the sort of writing that Dampier would do on the subject of local plant and animal life, here's the following from the Campeche Voyages. Quote, 
The armadillo, so-called from its suit of armor, is as big as a small suckling pig. The body of it is pretty long. This creature is enclosed in a thick shell, which guards all of its back, and comes down on both sides and meets under the belly, leaving room for the four legs. The head is small with a nose like a pig, a pretty long neck, and it can put out its head before its body when it walks. But upon any danger, he puts it under the shell, and drawing in his feet, he lies stock still like a land turtle. And, though you toss him about, he will not move himself. <laughs> like that they were just like kicking these sons of bitches. <laughs> I'm like a soccer ball. Like, like, look at this hilarious thing. <laughs> just either kicking or throwing them. The shell is jointed in the middle of the back so that he can turn the forepart of his body without about which way he pleases. The feet are like those of a land turtle, and it has strong claws wherewith it digs holes in the ground like a hare. End quote. That's pretty good. It's a pretty concise description of this critter. And yes, yeah. it does all the shits. It was really just like standing around watching them. <laughs> so, and however... kicking them and devouring yeah. them. Yeah. <laughs> we, we'll, we'll get to the, um, the, the more gourmet aspects. The bizarre foods chapter. Yeah. I, I can't wait to talk about the eating the armadillos part. <laughs> so, however, all this effort would all be for naught, as in late 1676, a hurricane came through and flattened not only much of the local logwood tree population, but also Dampier's camp. Salvaging what he could, he and some others took shelter with a mixed group of indigenous locals trying to live far away from the Spanish and a group that Dampier called privateers, but were in fact buccaneers. Mm. Now we've talked about them before on this show, but as a refresher, let's go over who the buccaneers actually were. These were men who lived outside of the major Caribbean settlements and made their living as raiders and thieves generally, taking their name from the boucan, or the racks that they would use to dry the meat of the wild hogs they mostly hunted. They didn't operate under any kind of state sanction, like privateers did with their letters of mark and reprisal, but nor did they operate like pirates going after whoever came by. Instead, they were sort of something in between the two. Oftentimes, they would concentrate on attacking one particular enemy, usually a foe of their country of origin. Like how Henry Morgan's raid on Spanish Panama wasn't, like, for England, but it was still for England. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This, these, there existed at the time an idea called No Peace Beyond the Line which meant that even if two European nations weren't in an official state of war, a constant low-level state of violence and conflict still existed in the Americas in general and the Caribbean in particular. Yeah, it was like a big trapezoid on the map where everybody was just kind of stealing each other's shit. Mm -hmm. and, the, and where buccaneers of one nation or several nations would concentrate their attacks on one nation's settlements or vessels in particular. Now, for a while, Dampier sort of became an almost informal buccaneer war correspondent. Tagging along on their attacks against Spanish targets and filling diaries with the accounts of their exploits. Now, Dampier himself doesn't officially state that he was a part of this violence, and I don't think we'll ever know for sure, but this is where he caught the buccaneering bug. Now, Dampier eventually returned to logwood cutting and made more money, but decided to cut bait and head on to the next step of his life, sailing back to Jamaica and then on to England right in time. As the logwood camps were raided by the vengeful Spanish, and many of Dampier's former woodcutter buddies were put to the sword, as the Spanish believed, probably correctly, I would think, that the logwood camps were a breeding ground for buccaneers. Hmm. Now, arriving back in Britain in August of 1678, Dampier did two things that showed the maturity he was starting to acquire in his late 20s. He invested most of the money he'd made in trading firms and in a large purchase of goods that he intended to ship back and sell in Jamaica, and he found himself a wife. A poor woman, a woman named Judith, who was part of the household of the Duchess of Grafton, another example of Dampier not being of the nobility, but managing to stay in their orbit. 
However, <laughs> one must feel for Judith, as what appears to be only a few days after their wedding in the spring of 1679, Dampier rented space aboard a trading vessel bound for Jamaica once more to sell his newly acquired trade goods intended to be back in a few months. It would be 12 years before he saw England again. Once back in the Caribbean, Dampier set about a couple quick trading jaunts before he ran into a small fleet being assembled with nearly 500 buccaneers, mostly English, about to set out on a good old-fashioned raid against the Spanish. The entire crew of Dampier's vessel <coughs> all signed on to join the expedition, so not wanting to be left out, Dampier basically said, ah, ah, the hell with it, why not? And joined up. Led by Captains Bartholomew Sharp and John Coxon, both protégés of Henry Morgan, the target was the rich Spanish settlement of Portobello, crucial to the silver and gold trade that fed the Spanish Empire and where they would load their famous treasure galleons. Loading onto canoes with 250 other men, Dampier went ashore down the coast and attacked Portobello from the, land, from the port's land side, taking the garrison by surprise and taking the town with minimal losses. This is well after Henry Morgan did this? This is a decade after Henry Morgan did yeah, this. Yeah, and, like, and they just keep doing it. Like All the forts are still facing out. Like all the all the the batteries are out, so they just keep attacking Panama overland. It's <laughs> like, ah, shit. Yeah, didn't <laughs> you, see that a, coming. Hear a bunch of men yelling and running with ladders. God, son of, ah, that's right. Hmm. That is how they all died last time. Oh, they do have feet. <laughs> <laughs> we were told the English didn't have feet. We were told we were told that only Catholics had feet. <laughs> <laughs> So the Buccaneers spent a couple weeks plundering the town of its wealth and then set off two days before a Spanish force of 700 soldiers arrived to wipe them out. During this time, Dampier became fast friends with a ship surgeon, and I use that term loosely because I believe he was only an apothecary's assistant before he signed on to the raiding expedition, who had the amusing name of Lionel Wafer, who also had a fascination with the natural world and exploration, and the two would be attached at the hip for the next 20 years both encouraging the other to do more and more to observe and report what natural wonders they encountered in their travels. Eat it. You should eat it. <laughs> the next step for Sharp, Dampier, Wafer, and the rest of the Buccaneers was to set out into a march through the jungle to the other side of Panama to take a crack at Spanish targets on the Pacific side of the Americas, thinking that they would be less well defended, and they were right. Marching through a forest filled with the local Kuna people and a whole new variety of animals and plants, Dampier went on the march, scribbling as many notes as he could as he went along, and the force set about raiding Spanish settlements and capturing several Spanish ships, which they outfitted for their own use and turned them into a means to start raiding further and further down the coast of South America, all the way down to what's now Peru and Chile. Oh, Spending... man, hear me out, hear me out. New Predator prequel. Sweet, I'm in. <laughs> the last one was good. <laughs> Very fascinating. Scribble, 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 scribble. I wonder <laughs> how he tastes. You, you need a nerdy guy. To, to go crazy in one of these movies. It always makes it better. It was big in the 80s. Yeah. We've kind of gotten away from it. So, the Buccaneers spent months hitting every Spanish target they could while Dampier was in his element, taking notes on natural wonders such as the striking Juan Fernandez Mountains and the huge shoals of anchovies that appeared to be shimmering silver islands in the middle of the sea miles across. As 1680 turned into 1681, the Buccaneers, depleted by sickness, weighed down by tons of ill-gotten treasure, and now being chased by a lot of angry Spaniards, after making a complete nuisance of themselves, set out on an arduous 600-mile trip in nothing but canoes along the Pacific coast, back to Panama, and back through the jungle to the Caribbean. They almost didn't make it, several times nearly being slaughtered by pursuing Spaniards or falling victim to harsh weather, 
but eventually about 100 remaining men made it back to the Caribbean side of Panama, where they captured more small vessels and set about raiding again on the Caribbean side of Central America. But over the course of the next few months, there was a rotating series of leaders due to casualties and mutinies, and several times various batches of treasure had to be abandoned in order for the men to escape with their lives. And the men fell to drunkenness and quarreling. Another year went by. More of the same. Raid, raid, raid. Right, right, right. Nom, nom, nom. We would assume. And so, finally, Dampier and some companions hadn't dealt with enough and decided to leave what remained of the expedition. Albeit with rucksacks full of pieces of eight, and in Dampier's case, all of his diaries. I wonder how many books he was carrying around. I'm trying to get a visual of that. I, I don't really know, like... He's more of a, a journal guy than a book guy. He kind of like writing his own, but I'm sure he had a, a fair amount. Well, that's what I mean. Like he, he could be, like, how many volumes? Of how many journal? volumes of his own diaries did he have? He, must have he had a wrote good a stack. lot. They're incredibly detailed too. Yeah. Like the you can still find them. Like it, a lot of his were published, and like oh, all of his diaries. I, I will say this: he did write in a very interesting form of shorthand, kind of in the way Samuel Pepys did. Um, so what would be 500 pages of regular writing ends up being about 250 pages of shorthand. Okay. But it's still a lot. Yeah, no, that's a lot. And he, he was drawing pictures of all this shit. He was and doing honestly, sketches like, and stuff, His too. illustrations are really good. Yeah. With the exception of bats. He could never draw bats. I could never get the feet right. Or the, or the heads. <laughs> so, in the summer of 1682, Dampier and his companions took ship to Virginia, by now a popular R&R spot for buccaneers, and as would so often happen after a couple months ashore and resting, and with little unknown nature to explore around the Chesapeake, <coughs> and growing tired of the woman he was shacking up with, who wasn't Judith, Dampier got the voyaging bug again and signed on to a buccaneering expedition in early 1683 with a captain named John Cook and his 18-gun vessel, the Revenge, intending to sail down around South America and once again raid the Pacific coastline. Another Revenge. Mm-hmm. Now, and a... Another Captain Cook. Different Cook, though. Suffering from storms all the way down, they stopped in the Cape Verde Islands, where Dampier and, and uh, Lionel Wafer's new best buddy, a ship's purser named John Smallbone, <laughs> was conned into spending everything he had on what he was told was valuable ambergris, uh, which is made in the digestive system of sperm whales and used in perfume. But it turns out that he had been sold multiple pounds of old goat shit. They... Would smell and look quite similar, astoundingly similar. It's crazy that ambergris, this absolutely revolting thing, is so impossibly valuable. Yeah. They still like fuck. They, they still make perfume out of it. But here's how they found out: because ambergris <laughs> gets starts to smell a lot sweeter as it ages, as it gets older and older and older and, and dries out, and it actually starts to smell a lot more pleasant. This stuff wasn't. <laughs> And so finally, one guy just started combing through it and went, there's grass in that. <laughs> I don't think that's, I don't think that came from a oh, whale. the land whale. Yeah. However, despite these setbacks, the Revenge gathered other buccaneers to her, and the flotilla made their way around Cape Horn, on the way capturing a 40-gun Danish vessel, never minding the fact that the Danes were close allies of the Britain, of British at this time. Uh, the ship was given the name Bachelor's Delight. Oh my God. Due to the cargo... Of 60 enslaved women aboard. Oh, no. Dampier makes no notes about what fate befell the human cargo, but I'm willing to bet it wasn't a happy one. No. Now, transferring over to the Bachelor's Delight, 
Dampier spent months sailing around the Pacific coasts of Mexico and South America and the Galapagos Islands, raiding every chance they got and taking large amounts of silver, rum, and valuable timber. Now, there's too many uh, individual actions to note here, but simply put, the men raided, careened their vessels, partied on the beach, hunted, gathered supplies, and the whole time, Dampier got to do what he loved the most, taking notes about his surroundings and the wildlife contained therein, sometimes writing in the margins of books and ledgers taken from Spanish ships and settlements. It's worth noting here, and we've made mention of this already, that not only was Dampier making all these notes on the appearance, behavior, and environment of animals, but also on qualities such as texture and taste. This man ate more turtle than April O'Neil. Yeah. Well, oh, oh, Jesus. Jesus Christ, Kyle. How long did you have that joke set up? It's been stewing for like 30 minutes now. So, <laughs> yeah, just about every animal that William Dampier wrote about, he also ate. In a variety of preparations, so just did, to make sure. So did Charles Darwin. So did Charles Darwin. Well, so Darwin... Naturalist before, was a very different phrase back then. Well, so before Darwin was even out of college at, um, I believe it was Cambridge he went to? Or one of the uh, the Oxbridge schools, they had what was called the Gourmand Society, where it was a club where the, the students, all male students at this time, would get together and just eat the most exotic shit they could, they could get their hands on. And... Uh, well, Darwin used uh, Dampier's... Journals yes. for his own expeditions. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so some of the animals that Dampier tried would include flamingos, uh, manatee. That's so fucked. He, he recommended young manatee. <laughs> the, the sweetest meat was of the still suckling manatee calf. Yes. Uh, and that is a quote. That is, not, <laughs> that is not hyperbole. That is a quote. It's in his book. Yes. They publish it. You buy it. <laughs> and, uh, and there was Dampier's personal favorite. The Galapagos giant tortoise, whose taste he described as being, quote, exquisite, like that of fresh butter, no matter the preparation. In fact, Galapagos tortoise would be so sought after as a meal for hungry sailors that it would be nearly 200 years after Dampier's first encounter with them before a live one would arrive in Europe. Because even the crews that were taken, uh, even the ones that were taken to be kept alive and exhibit in zoos would be killed and eaten by ship's crews who found them too delicious to resist. And who could who could possibly resist the, a sweet tortoise, a flamingo with a suckling manatee calf? <laughs> Three course mm-hmm. meal. I mean, the flamingo's at least like it's the traditional Italian seven fishes. Like that's a weird chicken, but like the other two, like I just I can't imagine what state my brain would have to be in that I'm just looking at a 150 pound tortoise just going, God damn, that looks delicious. I've eaten turtle. I've eaten gator. Yeah, but the alligators historically haven't had like giant shells. No, <laughs> so I mean, like both like a, a tortoise and a turtle kind of look the same. Kind of was kind of what I'm going for here. The, the shells would actually help in Galapagos tortoise storage aboard ships because tortoises, Galapagos tortoises, can live for up to six months without food and water. They yeah, have they a would, remarkable they would like lash them, but their their stomachs are also somewhat concave. So the sailors would take them down into the hold of the ships, tip them over. And they would just be stored like stackable. Yeah, holes. they would just stack them up, laying upside down, just waiting to be eaten by because they were so so tasty. So after spending two years raiding and exploring, during which the buccaneers were joined by one Captain Charles Swan and his sixteen-gun vessel, the Signet, it was decided that the fleet should break up and head in different directions, fearing Spanish reprisal. And Captain Swan decided that the Signet was going to go west, all the way across the Pacific in order to capture the Manila Treasure Galleon, supposedly the richest cargo vessel in existence. Now, how they intended to capture a heavily escorted 60-gun galleon with 16 guns of their own and only 100 men, 
I'm not sure. But the idea of new surroundings... Turtle and- armor. <laughs> Just covered head to toe in tortoise shell. Oh, I thought only the Koreans had the turtle ships. So, uh, but the idea of new surroundings and new places to see and write about struck Dampier's fancy, and he volunteered to join the Signet's crew in March of 1686. It was a long, arduous journey, taking the rest of the year, and the Signet nearly ran out of supplies, but it also provided Dampier, who was promoted to navigator, with his greatest challenge and practical experience in plotting a course to their goal and the promise of vast riches. Now, calling it Guam and Mindanao, the crew was close to starving on both occasions, but were in fact saved by Dampier's knowledge of plant and animal life. And in both places, they made the first gathering by the English of coconuts as a major food staple, and what would become a staple for both sailors on long trans-Pacific voyages and enslaved plant people on plantations. The breadfruit. Pleasant in taste, rich in calories, and easy to preserve. It sustained the men long enough to reach the Philippines and conduct a search for Spanish treasure ships while capturing other targets. Now, a variety of places were searched. China, Vietnam, the Spice Islands, even the northern coast of Australia, or New Holland, as it was known at the time. All the while, Dampier wrote of the indigenous peoples they encountered, new scats of wildlife and plants, and of the peculiarities of navigating in the East Indies. He wrote diaries that read like travel books about these shores of China and Vietnam, and the sultanates of Aceh and Mindanao. However, shipworms and the lack of a treasure galleon capture led to severe dissatisfaction, and not only was Captain Swan marooned with about a third of his men, but eventually Dampier and several others were left marooned on the Nicobar Islands, about 100 miles northwest of Sumatra. Can we, can we just circle back to the breadfruit? Yes. One, they tasted the breadfruit, and they're like, uh, and if anybody knows, doesn't know what a breadfruit, a, a, a breadfruit, it's like a jackfruit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're these just really big, kind of like, not quite watermelon, but like melon-sized things. They're kind of like potato-y. And they were like, man, this would be really great to just feed to slaves. Yeah. They're like, this is cheap, and it'll give them, give them <laughs> everything they need for a, a full day's energy of slaving. So... The amount of effort that they went through to get these things back, they were like there were thousands of potted breadfruit plants oh, yeah. put on these boats. Multiple expeditions, people died. Like the the what is the the king's uh, conservator like conservatory or whatever. Like they they sent gardeners down with the ships, and the gardeners would be all pissed off at the captains of these ships because they wouldn't let them use the water to water the plants. Like, we need that to not die. And they're like, well, I have to take care of these plants. Thousands of specimens. Yeah. And in one, the the, uh, the one gardener was fired in disgrace because out of the 2,300, and these things are just in whatever they can plant them in, uh, only like 670 of the the specimens survived. Yeah. And they fired the guy. Because they put it on a boat. And just so we're clear, it's... After a voyage of, like, nine months. Yeah. It's not like... This isn't an overnight thing. Well, and the, and the, and the breadfruit-growing operations, and the, especially in the, what would become the British Empire, went on for decades. I mean, uh, HMS Bounty. Correct. It was a breadfruit, was a breadfruit transport. Mm-hmm. With, uh, yeah, the mutiny and Captain Bly and all that. Hmm. It's... Yeah, it was... That's how Captain Bly made his bones. Yeah. Was, was growing and transporting breadfruit. Which is just the craziest fucking shit. Yeah. <laughs> The old James Cook breadfruit. So, after being marooned on the Nicobar Islands, it would appear that Dampier was screwed. But he was a never-say-die type of fella, and used the expertise of some of the locals to construct a canoe without riggers with just enough room for the little group of men, their supplies, and Dampier's books. And, inventively, 
it was named by Dampier the Nicobar Canoe. Okay. Smash a champagne bottle on the fucker. And it set out on a hazardous journey across the open sea to the British trading post at Aceh. They covered 150 miles of open ocean in a canoe. Wow. I mean, that's that takes balls. There are times, that's the thing, is there are times where William Dampier comes across as a really silly figure, almost. But he's, the, I mean, he's he was never short of courage. I will say that. He he did things that, I'm, I, I know a lot of people who would kind of, you, you know, know, myself included. Wilt, here. yeah, all, uh, me too, probably. So, Dampier was saved, at least for the moment, and he took a slot on a trading vessel called the Cortana, which spent even more time bopping around the East Indies. It was during this period in 1690 that Dampier inherited the possession of an enslaved man covered in tattoos known only as pr- either Prince Giolo or Prince Gialli, captured from one of Indonesia's most northern islands and ending up in the possession of one of Dampier's English friends who handed over ownership when he was dying. So in January of 1691, while calling at one of England's new trading posts in India, Dampier encountered the British merchantman Defense and booked passage back to England. It was finally time to head home. But it took 10 months to sail back, stopping at St. Helena and the Cape of Good Hope. But finally, in October of 1691, with only his journals and Prince Giolo in tow, Dampier was finally back in England. He had little to show for his absence, except the knowledge he had gathered and the man he had acquired. But since he was strapped for cash... He made the truly shitty move of selling Prince Giolo for 60 pounds to the Blue Boar Inn on Fleet Street to be displayed as a curiosity. After only three months, poor Giolo, who had gone through so much in his enslavement and the journey to Britain, had died of smallpox. That it was his his mother was with him, and his mother died, and it kind of like destroyed this poor bastard's psyche. He was like covering himself in her old clothes, like wouldn't perform and stuff, and like. They were still selling admission to mm-hmm. see, oh, see the tattooed man. As he's just crying, like, holding his mother's clothes. Yeah. And then dying of smallpox. Like, what a horrible, horrible thing. That's whatever shitty, fucked up term they probably They're like, oh, him. he's a prince. And he, he wasn't. Yeah. They just said he was. And then he was just crying and wailing. And then having smallpox. Well, people are paying a penny to see him. Yeah, come see the tattooed foreigner. He's a prince, after all. Prince Giolo. That's not even his name. <laughs> like, not only is he not a prince, it's not Giolo. They just couldn't say Gioli. Yeah. So, taking a job with the Customs and Excise Department, Dampier spent the next five and a half years as a workaday fellow, a minor bureaucrat of modest income, although reunited with what one would expect to be a fairly less-than-enthused Judith. I think after 12 years, a, so where the fuck were you, is justified. Yeah. And in accordance with, like, there's no, uh, this man was basically sailing in places where their, like, maps were pretty unclear if he, they He existed. was the one drawing them in most yeah, cases. Yeah. So it's not like you can just send correspondence back. Nope. You're not passing <laughs> other trading vessels because it's literally just you, a piece of paper, a pen, and, you know, like, you're just kind of guessing, like, this is... Oh, there's an inlet here. Yep. It's well, probably you, not too big. You can't send a par- carrier, a carrier flamingo, because you ate all of them. Because you just devoured them <laughs> with their sweet, sweet tongues that he talked about at length. God, he did. Yeah, he was like, oh, they got this fat on. You're gonna fucking love this. Tongue. I've arrived on the coast of Britain. A horse messenger will send word to my wife. Oh, right. A regular. Messenger I ate now. the horse. <laughs> a standard yeah. messenger. Now he's on foot because Bill Dampier was a little hungry. Now, there was a little attempt at some more adventure when in 1694, Dampier signed up as second mate on a ship that was part of a salvage expedition to the Caribbean, 
meant to raid Spanish wrecks and recover lost treasure. And to make it a short story, the leader and financiers believed that they had the, a dispensation from the King of Spain to do so, and surprise, that wasn't actually the case. Somebody had sold him a bill of goods, so they sort of just bopped around trying to unsuccessfully try to acquire trade goods to make some kind of profit, and dissatisfaction mounted. Now, this led to an officer named Henry Avery taking 85 men and leading a mutiny to take over the flagship, the Charles II, which they did successfully. And renamed it the Fancy. Now, Dampier was given an opportunity to join them, but going that extra-legal wasn't to his tastes. Now, Avery would sail off into the Indian Ocean and make the single wealthiest capture by any pirate ever before disappearing into history, never to be brought to justice, which is a story for another time, then. Mm. Dampier returned to England in 1695 with pretty much no back pay to show for his time away and resumed his day job. However, in his spare time, he was using his journals as a source for a book called A New Voyage Round the World. And when it was published in 1697, everything would change for Dampier, which is something we'll discuss after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon, Scotch, Irish, Indian, and even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. Welcome back. Now, once William Dampier's book was published, it was a sensation. The great and the good of London society were fascinated, and soon Dampier was invited to give lectures on his experiences at Oxford and Cambridge, in various coffee houses and salons, and at the primary organization for Britain's men of science, the Royal Society. The lectures padded his income, and the success of his writing would mean that the author bug was also biting and would never really go away. At the very beginning of 1699, his publishing house would release Dampier's second work, Voyages and Descriptions, the initial print run of which sold out before it even hit the shelves. Hmm. Now, new words appeared in English for the first time, like chopsticks, avocado, subspecies, sea lion, serrated, tortilla, and stilts. I wonder how stilts got in here. Um, it, was in re- it was in relation to elevated houses on the edge of the water. Okay, I think that I remember makes, that. Okay, that makes more sense. Because I'm thinking, yeah. like, what would he be doing with people walking around on stilts? But how <laughs> homes built on stilts, that makes so much more sense. Yeah. Now, this success also caught the eye of King William III, who desired to use the ever-growing Royal Navy as a means to further explore and possibly claim territory that would serve the expanding trade interests of the British Empire. To this end, in the autumn of 1698, Dampier was given a royal commission for a voyage, not for profit, but for a different kind of investment knowledge. Now, this was the first of many Navy-led expeditions of exploration and science from Captain Cook to John Franklin, and uh, Dampier was to take command of the 26-gun HMS Roebuck and her crew of 50 men and sail all the way to New Holland, that's Australia to you and me, which had been discovered, quote-unquote, by Dutch explorer Abel Tasman decades earlier, but the Dutch claim was never really recognized, nor, nor were they in a position to enforce it. And so Dampier and his crew were to chart the coast, make notes of the flora and fauna, and strengthen intelligence on the region. Now, setting sail on January 10th, 1699, the same day his second book was released, the Roebuck was sailing too early in the year to go around Cape Horn, so Dampier sailed around Africa, now somewhat familiar to him, 
and crossed the Indian Ocean, arriving in what became known as Shark Bay in early August, which is honestly pretty good time for the period. Didn't now, he name it that? Yes. This fucking guy, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm honestly surprised it wasn't Tasty Shark Bay. Yeah, it was Delicious Bay. Yeah. Now, Dampier and the Roebuck took advantage of the Royal Navy's famed efficiency and professionalism and spent months charting the coastline of the island continent, as well as those of New, New Guinea, Timor, New Ireland, New Britain, and the Bismarck Archipelago, and parts of New Zealand, as well as collecting many notes and specimens of plants and animals. Now, Dampier writes of how delicious he found kangaroo to be and how unpleasant he found the texture and taste of emu. He observed and recorded the Aboriginal Australian population and in a couple cases had some skirmishes and a near-death experience where a spear thrown by a pissed-off local missed his head by only a couple of inches. He called it Dutch and Portuguese trading posts and acted as something of a diplomat, dining and making trade with them. But while he was getting along with others outside of the Roebuck, he wasn't doing so well with the crew themselves. They saw him as something of a martinet, the sort of captain who couldn't be bothered all that much with the welfare of his crew, and several deaths over the course of the expedition were blamed on his negligence and poor decision-making. Several times he came to blows with his officers, and on the outward voyage, he had his original second-in-command, one Lieutenant Fisher, jailed in Brazil. Now, after over a year spent in the region, the Roebuck had accrued volumes of notes and crates of samples collected, but with the crew starting to make some mutinous rumbles and the ship on the verge of falling apart through overuse and shipworm... And repeated kangaroo attacks. Oh, yeah. And, well, I would say emu attacks. We know they can beat people in a war. It's just it's true. It's been documented. It's been documented, yeah. Dampier decided that it was time to head on home. Now, going back the way they came, the Roebuck made it part of the way, all the way across the Indian Ocean and around the Cape of Good Hope. But once they entered the South Atlantic, things weren't looking so good. Now, trying to put in on the isolated volcanic rock pile known as Ascension Island, about halfway between southern Africa and South America, on the 21st of, of February 1701, the Roebuck finally gave up the ghost. Anchoring off the shore, the leaks became too much for the ship's carpenters to handle, and she slowly foundered, taking with her many of the samples taken during the voyage, although the crew managed to save all of the writings and charts and most of their supplies. However, they were still marooned on Ascension for five weeks, before a British East Indiaman making a pit stop found them and brought them back to England in August of 1701. Now, Dampier's return wasn't quite what he'd hoped for. Though the scientific community lauded his return and eagerly awaited the lectures about his voyage, the Royal Navy wasn't quite so pleased with the loss of a frigate and what Lieutenant Fisher had to say after he was released and managed to get <clears throat> passage back to London. An Admiralty Court initiated a court-martial for the loss of the ship and for unnecessary cruelty to the crew and the wrongful death of the ship's boatswain. And on the 8th of June, 1702, Dampier was acquitted of the boatswain's death and the loss of the ship, but found guilty of the charge of hard and cruel usage of officers and had to forfeit most of his pay and was deemed unfit to command any of His Majesty's ships in the future. In this time period, he got convicted of being too mean. That's astounding. This is... This is well in, like, the hardtack era. Yeah. <laughs> However, while waiting for his court-martial, Dampier had written another book and had gone back on the lecture circuit, and A Voyage to New Holland hit shelves in early 1703 to critical acclaim. But something else had occurred that would occupy Dampier's attention. War had broken out again. This time, the War of Spanish Succession, which we've discussed before as the war that formed the skills and conditions for many of the figures of the Golden Age of Piracy. <clears throat> now, just because William Dampier 
couldn't command a Royal Navy vessel anymore didn't mean there wasn't going to be a job for him at sea. And that meant becoming a privateer to go hunt Spanish and French targets. Now, lending his talents to a consortium of London businessmen and investing some of his own cash, Dampier joined on a planned expedition, including two vessels, the 26-gun St. George and the 16-gun Sank Ports, and a total of 183 men. Their goal was, as before, to travel to the Pacific side of Central and South America to attack Spanish targets, and if they could, to capture a treasure galleon. Now, setting sail on the 12th of September, 1703, from Ireland, the two ships made steady progress across the Atlantic and made the storm-tossed passage through Cape Horn, arriving at the Chilean coast in five months. They started their campaign by attacking a heavily armed French merchantman, the San Joseph, operating alone in a seven-hour duel, but her guns were enough to damage and drive off both English ships, killing nine English sailors. Now, shaking off that bad start, Dampier's vessels captured several smaller Spanish craft, relieving them of cargoes of wool, linen, brandy, and, in one case, 30 tons of quince marmalade, mm. uh, which, of course, Dampier had to sample, and he quite enjoyed, according to his notes, and sending them on their way, before sailing north to launch an attack on the Spanish town of Santa Maria in Dampier's old uh, stomping grounds of Panama. Now, launching an assault on the town, they met unexpectedly stiff resistance, and after suffering modest casualties, again were driven off. Things, after going 0-2, continued to not go well. Now, eight men from the St. George stole a small boat and deserted, never to be heard from again, and the captain of the St. Ports died, to be replaced by a 21-year-old named Thomas Stradling, whose second-in-command was a cantankerous 23-year-old Scotsman named Alexander Selkirk. Now that I've said it, I'm aware that cantankerous Scotsman is redundant. <clears throat> now, 20 of the St. George's crew then sailed off and deserted while crewing a prize vessel. <laughs> they, they literally sailed off in the night, and everybody woke up in the morning going, uh, wasn't there... There was a... no Big thing with sails. You guys remember that, right? Now, a dispute between Dampier and the St. Port's new captain led to the two ships splitting up. Dampier sailed off on a, to a raid off of Panama, while the now badly leaking Sank ports headed to the Juan Fernandez Islands, where a dispute between Captain Stradling and Alexander Selkirk over the vessel's seaworthiness led to Stradling abandoning Selkirk on the island of Masa Tierra alone, where he would remain for quite some time. Could you imagine the string of curses that must have just lasted for weeks? Weeks? Months? He was on that he was he on that island kind for of over forget four, English. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit. <laughs> he had to relearn a lot of his mother tongue. Yeah. Now, as it turns out, Selkirk was right about the sank ports. The vessel foundered and sank about a week and a half later off of the Colombian coast, with only eight survivors, only one of whom, Captain Stradling, would make it back to England after a decade in captivity. See, I tried to tell him, tried to tell him the boat wasn't any good, but they wouldn't listen to yeah. Captain Stradling. Now, meanwhile... That damned Selkirk wouldn't stop talking about how much he wanted to be on this boat. <laughs> but no, it was the other way <laughs> right. around. Well, I'm, I'm doing the straddling yeah. defense. <laughs> mm. Now, meanwhile, Dampier and the St. George were now by themselves, and this is where they took a crack at finally capturing a galleon. Finding the Nuestra Señora del Rosario, a 900-ton monster, anchored off of Panama on the 6th of December, 1704. Now, sailing up on the galleon, which had her gun ports closed and her crew at ease... Dampier had a distinct advantage, which he would need, as the Spanish had a crew of 250 men to his 90, and the Del Rosario's 42 guns were mainly 24-pounders, compared to the main battery of 6-pounders that the St. George possessed. Uh, if going by the square cube law, mm. each gun has 16 times more power. 
than uh, each of the St. George's guns. Now, Dampier blew it. He hoisted the English ensign too early, and then he hesitated, breaking off his pursuit course for a while before finding his courage and sending the St. George back in after her target. This allowed the Spanish galleon to clear for action and run out her guns, and Dampier lost all surprise and initiative. Now, the already leaky St. George was hammered with several heavy broadsides, hold several times beneath the waterline and having a rigging shot to tatters. Another dozen English sailors were killed. In return, it looked like the St. George was barely making a scratch, so Dampier was forced to break off the attack, and the Nuestra Señora del Rosario sailed away safely. The expedition completely came apart after this failure. Only 30 men decided to stay with the St. George, and the rest sailed off on a captured Spanish ship, both vessels going for what was the closest friendly territory, the Dutch East Indies. They had to go the whole way across the Pacific. Now, before even setting off, however, the badly damaged St. George began to take on water and was abandoned, Dampier and his remaining men moving to a small Spanish ship that they had taken to make their long crossing. This is the one part of Dampier's sailing career as an adult where he doesn't keep any record, whether it was out of shame or he had Hmm. other concerns on his mind. So we don't know how long the crossing took... Hmm. But they did eventually arrive at Batavia, only to be promptly thrown in prison as Dampier had left his letter of mark, his privateering license, on board the abandoned St. George. Oh, jeez. But of course, he didn't forget his diaries. It was, however, his diaries that provided the evidence for his and his men's release. And eventually, they took passage all the way back to Britain, arriving in November of 1707. Dampier, although it had taken three ships, almost five years, and a whole lot of fuck-up, had technically managed his second circumnavigation of the globe. And he once again had some writing to show for it. In addition, three other works had been published in his absence. (laughs) And although the privateering expedition had been an abject failure, with almost a total loss of the initial investment, he did come back to a nice backlog of royalties and as many lecturing gigs as he could handle, softening the financial blow. Now eventually, the investors of the expedition would file a lawsuit against Dampier for negligence, but that was going to be a worry for another time. Now, he was enjoying life on shore, but since he was the way he was, William Dampier soon had a hankering to once again go to sea. There was still a war on, and he was desperate to repair both his finances and his reputation. So he signed on to another privateering expedition, led by a man named Woods Rogers, as the pilot of the 30-gun armed vessel Duke, in company with the 26-gun Duchess. I see you smiling at the word Duke, Kyle. I see you grinning. Yeah. I just think it's adorable that the ships are named Duke and Duchess. Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of adorable. Cute. But yeah, so two gun, uh, two ships, three hundred and forty men signed on for the voyage. Dampier was to receive one sixteenth of all profits from the voyage as his reward for participating. Oh, wow! And lending his expertise to the expedition. Now, setting off from Bristol in August of seventeen oh eight, they sailed around Cape Horn and once again up the Pacific coast of South America, stopping in the Juan Fernandez Islands. Where on the second of February seventeen oh nine they came upon a curious sight. Alexander Selkirk, abandoned on Massa Tierra 52 months earlier, now wearing goatskins and having built a self-sufficient existence on the island. I... Alex! Just incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Just incredible. Absolutely amazing. Like, of all of the people that, that you could run into, one is someone you knew. It was Dampier that recognized him. Yeah, it was him. Dampier recognized him. And it's like... 
as we talked about before, we do talk about Selkirk <laughs> a little more at length, I believe, in the Woods Rogers yes, uh, yes. series. That we if did. You, yeah, if you want to know a bit more about this circumnavigation and about the Alexander Selkirk story, we definitely met, recommend that you go back and give our Woods Rogers series a listen. But they found a Selkirk. Like Now he's just wearing skins with a trained army of cats surrounded by goats. Yeah. Just uh, the only English that he really remembered at this point were scriptures. So he just basically couldn't communicate. The only English he could communicate in was scripture. And that's just shit he memorized. Like, it's not even at that point words anymore. Yeah. Well, and he, he It's like was... whenever you teach a parrot to talk, it's like a parlor trick. <laughs> or like how we did with Mike Ernett. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like Mike, like Mike. <laughs> he, was, he, was, he was so fit that his way of hunting goats was instead of shooting them because he ran out of powder and shot, was just to chase them down and stab them. Going old school. <laughs> It worked. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just this completely batshit, insane little Irishman. Scotsman. 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 Yeah. Oh, I, we, particularly, get, we get never tour over there now. They'll kill me. Particularly cantankerous, as we've discussed earlier in the episode, <laughs> and basically every other episode. Yeah. Now, Dampier's diaries covered the discovery of the castaway, and these notes would go on to inspire a work by one Daniel Defoe. Now, the expedition captured and then ransomed the settlement of Guayaquil in present-day Ecuador and then managed to corner a potential prize off of Cabo San Lucas, one that Dampier was hoping for in his last expedition, a Spanish treasure galleon. She was the Nuestra Señora de la Encarnación y Desengaño, Our Lady of the Incarnation and Disappointment, with 190 men aboard and 45 guns, although all of her heavy guns had been dismounted and stored below as extra ballast. She, because she was loaded... With so much cargo, so high in her cargo hold, that she was in danger of tipping over. That's a loaded down vessel. That's a, yeah. It's a pretty lucky prize. Yeah. Now, there's more detail on this engagement in our Woods Rogers series, but to go over it quickly, the English ships managed to use their superior speed and smaller size to quickly roll up on the treasure galleon and force a boarding action. But before many losses were suffered, the Spanish captain saw the, the virtue of preserving his men's lives, and surrendered. The take was massive. Almost 200,000 pounds worth of silver, pearls, spices, porcelain, and silks, worth a quarter of a billion dollars at modern purchasing power. Now hunted by every Spanish warship in the region, and with Dampier now promoted to sailing master, the English vessels and their prize beat feet in the safer direction, all the way across the Pacific to the East Indies and the protection of their Dutch allies, where, when they arrived in Batavia, Woods Rogers, who still had a Spanish musket ball lodged in his jawbone, still had the letter of mark in his possession, so no one was thrown in jail this time. At least he remembered that. Yeah. Oh, I left it. I left it on the... Oh, it's in my other boat. Uh, it's on the coffee table at home. Now, the voyage continued around the Cape of Good Hope, and on the 14th of October, 1711, after another three years and change away, William Dampier... Dropped anchor in the Thames. This was circumnavigation number three. Arguably the most successful so far. Mm. And yet, another book by Dampier had been published in his absence. I got curious about this. As to why so many books were being published while Dampier was away. I did a little digging. I found out that publishing houses had long, really long printing backlogs. Because printing, using that printing presses sense. at this time was way quicker than mm -hmm. the old way of doing things. But it still it's wasn't still incredibly fast. fast. So it was it's like... Still Doing one page at a time. Here's your advance. We'll print it when we're able, once we get through the backlog, and oftentimes that could be one, two, three years quite easily. 
So hence why, you know, he would turn in the manuscripts while he was home. Years later. And they would just get around later. eventually to getting them out on the shelves. That makes sense. Yeah. Now, having completed the, his record third circumnavigation and achieving a lifetime goal of capturing a full-on Spanish treasure galleon, you'd think that the last part of William Dampier's life would be a pretty good one. But that wasn't exactly the case. While, on away on his, uh, while away on his expedition with Rogers, his wife Judith had died. And he spent the rest of his days shacked up in London with his, quote, dear cousin, a younger woman named Grace Mercer. Have a feeling that may not be an accurate term. You mean oh. like how all of uh, all of history's great artists just lived with their like longtime roommates? Yeah, well, they were just best pals. They lived together and they held hands a lot. Oh, these two men were buried together, embracing. They were clearly good friends. This was a time, though, in the defense of of people who do say shit like that, like love between platonic people like if you read a lot of mm-hmm. these letters that were like completely platonic relationships mm-hmm. yeah. it's like oh i can't wait to to kiss your cheeks again yeah you had different ideas of love you <laughs> yeah, had eros right. and agape and all that and yeah it's it's very classical idea of doing things yeah um, we're just saying that most history was just afraid of the gays grace mercer wasn't his cousin no no it, well yeah well it, it it it's that and the other term was housekeeper mm-hmm. ah so <laughs> what was bang made <laughs> oh. <laughs> Yet another Frank Reynolds. Yeah. So, Dampier waited and waited to receive his share of the profits from the expedition. But the payments were held up in litigation based on a trio of disputes. One where the East India Company was claiming grievance over the spoils which had been taken in their backyard, which was anywhere between the Cape of Good Hope and Cape Horn. Mm. And they believed that they had first claim to all the loot over the investors in the expedition. The second dispute was between the rest of the investors and Dampier himself, who believed that his 116th share should come out of the total profits, whereas they were trying to pay him 116th of the owner's share. Hmm. So the share that doesn't go to the rest of the crew, it gets complicated. And then there's the third dispute, which held a cabal of regular sailors who believed, probably rightly, that the owners had underdeclared the total take and were trying to pay the sailors out of a smaller pot than they were entitled to. So, even though the expedition would have netted Dampier several thousand pounds, a fortune for the time, he never saw a penny of it other than a modest advance. Not only that, but Dampier was getting old, now over 60, and his incredibly sharp mind was starting to go, along with his eyesight and any inclination to go on any further ventures. He would give rambling, disjointed talks at the Royal Society. He regaled coffeehouse patrons with tales of his exploits. We don't know whether they were accurate or not, but he mostly just sat at home. Wistfully remembering past glories. Does and he... meals. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did say past glories. I, I would assume it's mostly of the gourmand variety. Diseased and depressed, in late 1714, he thought it prudent to draft his will. And as he was childless, all of his estate was split between his older brother George, who got 10%, and the 90% went to Grace Mercer. A bit of a double-edged sword by that time, as he was about 2,000 pounds, or about $1.2 million today, in debt. Oof. It was none too soon, as in early 1715, we don't know exactly when or exactly from what, William Dampier died. We know that his will was proven on March 23, 1715, and a year later his outstanding earnings from his last voyage were finally paid out. Every debt going to paying off the debt of his, or every penny going off to paying the debt of his estate. Now, we know of the years spent abroad and the more than 200,000 miles that Dampier traveled in his life, 
but we actually don't know of his final resting place. Hmm. Nobody knows where William Dampier is buried. Which is wild. Circumstances of his death. Mm-hmm. Date of his death. Where he's buried. Nothing. Nothing at all. Not a sausage. So, as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, Dampier's work was a critical building block in the natural sciences, navigation, hydrography, and exploration. And his bibliography is significant. For somebody who spent years and years away, it's not bad. His works are in order. A New Voyage Around the World, 1697. Voyages and Descriptions, 1699. A Voyage to New Holland, 1703. A Supplement of the Voyage Around the World, 1705. Sequel. The Campeche Voyages, 1705. A Discourse of Winds, 1705. Title stolen from Kyle's memoir about eating cheese. And... We... Hey, I don't fart. Everyone, <laughs> everyone knows that. That's... <laughs> you don't fart, you panic. Yep. <laughs> and finally, a continuation of a voyage to New Holland, 1709. So, that's seven books, two of which are sequels, or continuations, but still, pretty good. But also, the literature of his exploits gave us everything from Robinson Crusoe to Gulliver's Travels to On the Origin of Species. William Dampier is cited over 80 times in the Oxford English Dictionary being the first to read, bring to English liter, uh, language literature those words. To quote a pirate of exquisite mind, Dampier's literary legacy was considerable. Most important, his books provided a new kind of travel writing. They gave fresh substance to the armchair reader's journey by appealing to all five sentence, senses. As the reader went round the globe with Dampier, as Defoe put it, he not only saw what an anteater looked like, but smelled its musky scent. He heard the sound of aboriginal words. He ran his fingers over the glossy skin of an avocado and felt the roughness of the skin of a, of a stingray. He tasted the flesh of a Vietnamese frog and crunched locusts between his teeth. So great was the detail that the reader learned the price of travel, the uncertainties, dangers, and risk of illness. Dampier's descriptions of dysentery are nothing if not graphic, as well as the elation when seabirds heralded land and local people proved friendly. End quote. Well, it, the friendly is one thing, but if you do notice his his writing of uh, like the Australian Aboriginal tribes changes after one tried to kill him with a spear. Yeah, it becomes less than charitable. <laughs> yeah, it, like it's it's like kind of fine, <laughs> and then it's just mean. <laughs> yeah. Now the world is covered in towns, a pub, and a vast array of peninsulas, straits, islands, and bays that bear the name of William Dampier. Or of ships like the Roebuck. Speaking of the Roebuck, in 2001, the Roebuck's wreck was found, and since then, artifacts have been recovered and put on display in museums in Britain and Australia. Now, living in a time that saw the world change so much and interwoven with so many of the events we've talked about on this podcast before, and we will talk about in episodes to come, William Dampier certainly led nothing if not an interesting life. Flawed, yes, but not short of accomplishments and stories to tell. And it's those stories that make him such a fascinating subject. And that's our story of William Dampier. 80 times using the Oxford English Dictionary. Like, still! Yeah. It's not like... And it's... I, I, he didn't invent these words. It was what Shakespeare's credited with thousands of words that he, he created. I, we don't want to say he created the words, but he's the first... The very first 
English writings of these words belong to Dampier, a pirate. Yes. Uh, uh, and just a fascinating person. He was a pirate. He was a, just a, a mariner, a man of science. He had an incredibly inquiring mind, and then he would just go do, like, awesome shit. It, the amount of things that this guy did in his life... Fascinating, even by modern standards. Mm-hmm. And we can just go do all of these things if we do so desire. Yeah, it doesn't take us eight months to get to... to and we still Batavia. haven't done these things. Yeah. Mm. You know, I've never touched a stingray. I can. I know where there's an aquarium. It's not far. I could do it tomorrow. Yeah. I have it. He did. Just because he could. You know, I didn't write the first English recipe for guacamole. <laughs> but he did. In Panama, he was like, absolutely... Yeah. Taken by this, how does he describe the fruit? Is like having a rough, dark skin, like tree bark. And then he goes on, like the locals would cut it open, chop it, mash it with garlic and uh, peppers. Like they're making jalap, they're making guacamole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he he brought that information halfway across the world. He talks about the avocado the same way that the naturalist who discovered the first platypus does. Like, what the hell is this thing? <laughs> And whenever it's, uh, I, I don't remember. I bet he ate platypus. Uh, I mean, he's widely credited with being the like the reason why Australia is a thing. Yeah. So sure, but, uh, like mango mango chutney, he has an ingredient. Well, has, I remember there were recipe like for well the British mango were like, chutney. Yeah. What the fuck? Well, the British were like, where do we send all these convicts? Hmm. You know, I was reading this book, <laughs> and I think I may have a spot. The it's, amount of people that still, and you know, this is not as contemporaries today, but even contemporaries will reference his writings. Yeah, but like Charles Darwin talked about him. Oh, well into the nineteenth century, oh, yeah. naturalists. Yeah. I mean, were Darwin, referring to him. Darwin yeah. talked about him because of all the shit he wrote in the Galapagos. They were talking That's probably to why Darwin did it. Shackleton talks about him. Like all these explorers going into the twentieth century, even yeah, Joseph Banks, and just talking about like his his. First voyage with James Cook. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, well, this guy said this. And just quotes him. Because he's right. It's written very eloquently. And it's passionate. It's absolutely fascinating, man. Like, Gulliver's travels... He's Gulliver. Yeah. It's Dampier. Dampier's Gulliver. It's, it's, he's just such a fascinating man. He's All just such a fascinating man. Named, not just the places yeah. named after him. Delicious Shark Bay. <laughs> Old Bay. <laughs> but always remember, everybody, as we go forward, when you're eating a manatee, you want it to be you want it to be a young one. They are sweetest when still suckling. How do you how do you coop up a baby manatee to make manatee veal? <laughs> like, do you drop it on land and They're just not like super... don't let it move? I don't know if you've ever seen a, a manatee, but they just kind of go. Yeah, they just kind of float. They're like yeah. they're like sea blimps. They know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. That's why they keep getting hit by various speedboats. <laughs> yeah. The zeppelins of the mangroves. <laughs> but yeah, if you see them, like they have giant fins and flippers, but they just kind of go. And they hope they drift near food. Then they eat it with their giant, hilarious mustaches. Ugh. I the dude it. is credited with the word subspecies. Yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> well, he was one of the first to 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 look at a at the development of a species 
in a particular region, and I mean, mm-hmm. way before Darwin, in, in the Galapagos specifically, it's like, right. huh, this kind of looks like that, but this part of it looks different. Yeah. I wonder if it's because it's locked in this region completely by itself. Yep. He was a travel blogger, like slash influencer, because everybody was hanging on like this guy's pictures. And this is interesting too that you bring this up. He does speak like a proto evolutionist mm-hmm. when he talks about the Galapagos Islands. Yeah. I mean, I that's I, I that's often that's cited as without the, precedent. The main reason why Darwin picked the Galapagos mm-hmm. Islands as the definition for er, destination, excuse me, for the Beagle. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, he's such a fascinating. Yeah, first. The first travel blogger that would, at times, Coins. attack Spanish settlements. <laughs> Coins the like, term. Just steer his warship yeah. to Panama and just start laying hate. Usually that's left for, like, early 20s British citizens today. Correct. Yeah. But it's like, it, it's... Where did that one dude get stuck? Wasn't it, like, in the in Afghanistan whenever they were... Yeah. <laughs> he just, like, went because he saw it was cheap. And then he just got stuck there. And he just kept posting pictures of him, like, armed. What the fuck, man? He was there for a while. Yeah, he bought a... What was it? A, I think the same thing I did. Like, the, the fake lordship. Yeah. So they just let him in. <laughs> and then he got stuck there. And he had to, like, fight his way out of Afghanistan. It was a big effort to get him out. He had a certificate showing that he was a mullah. Yeah. <laughs> That's incredible. So, but I, I love it. Yeah, like, he coined the term subspecies. Like Mr. Dampier, can you use he it in may a have sentence? Actually yes, I that found. Term. Yes, I found which subspecies go best with a good glass of claret. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's incredible. Oh, God, he ate the noble flamingo. Yeah. And for that, I will never forgive him. Well, if you listen to this episode and you have thoughts about William Dampier or your favorite most tasty exotic species, reach out to us. And Chris, where can people do that? I'm just hang on. I can't stop thinking about him eating all these delicious flamingos i love flamingos and that's just not fair but if you would like to find us all you have to do is go online you can find us at thieves rogues well actually first let's just have you send an email if you have any recipes so if you want to do that you can send us an email at uh trrpod at gmail.com manatee wellington yeah which which is do we braise or broil uh you can follow us on twitter at podcast trr follow us on instagram at trr pod you can find us on facebook simply by searching thieves rogues and renegades and you can gain access to valhalla simply by finding us at uh, patreon.com slash trr pod yep for as little as a buck a month you can help us out you can support the podcast make us bigger better and and drink. if you're already on Patreon, you'll be yeah. listening to this episode right now. Everybody and else has to wait. Drink mead from us with us from Curved Horn. <laughs> so uh, that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Next time we're oh we're going to be telling another fun story. This one is a story of flim flammery and shucking and jiving and horse shit set in the good old U.S. of A. We're going to tell the story of the Cardiff Giant. I'm looking forward to this one. Mm-hmm. It's going to be so much stupid bullshit. I can't wait. It It'll a, be a, a five-part docu-series. It'll be another 12 hours. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. It is a quintessentially, cut that, cut that, cut that. It is a quintessentially American story. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up. We're uh, going to grab my fouling piece. Raise your rum punches. If I, if I would have known, I would have made this a big old batch yeah. of rum punch. Because I love oh, a yeah. good rum punch. Never had. You, you know what? We showed up, and you had food for us, but they were not. It was not flamingo wings. Uh, I don't know, man. Like it's. It was it not was technically lo- fast food. I'm not sure what's in it. It was not loin of Galapagos tortoise. I'm just. 
I'm disappointed, man. I don't know what kind of cuts you get out of a turtle. I'm going to figure that out. Mm. I've butchered a lot of stuff. Never a turtle. Yeah. I just feel like it's kind of in there. You know, I mean, I would assume assume accessing everything involves a certain amount of levering at first. Ah, I figured that one out. But I get a jack in a garage. (laughs) (laughs) Just right up the butt. But like, yeah, I don't know. Like, I know how it works on. Just get an air compressor. (laughs) It was like, I I also know that, you know, turtles, as uh, we talked about earlier with Kyle, uh, shaped a little different than most other critters. Yeah. I'm going to get on this. I'm I'm going to look into this. Man, I'm getting hungry. Backstraps, baby. All right, we're gonna we're 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 gonna wrap it up because I gotta go find some more food. The more exotic, the better. Hold fast, everybody. We'll catch you later. Bye now.